<laughs> I've been feeling all day long this little kind of undercurrent of, um, of joy. Of the, I think it's because I just love, 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 love sharing the good news. And I think I'm a little, this is what I think I share with my, all my colleagues is that, uh, is that there's something about something that has resonated in any of us as truth uh, that ignites a, a kind of joy and happiness. And I think it's one of the ways that we often overlook that love expresses itself as a, I call it a love of truth. We just love truth when all is said and done, even though our habits are to, uh, to hide from it in different ways. Uh, but nevertheless, we, um, I think as we open to our experience and even as we open to our pain and our memories and our traumas and everything, there's, it is kind of magical how awakening to the truth, how the truth... Uh, becomes the cause of happiness. And it is that unique human experience that, that our difficulties uh, become the cause of our well-being. And that's, uh, that makes me very happy just to think about that. And I, as I was sitting tonight, in the half hour as we were starting, I was, especially whenever I'm on retreat, in the retreat environment, I have a whole series of memories that arise about my own uh, experiences of practice. And one of them tonight just came flooding through. And it was, it was I think it's relevant to what I want to talk about tonight. I want to talk about the, the uh, rather than awakening joy, I want to talk about the joy of awakening. which is really interchangeable. But I was sitting a, a long practice period, a, a retreat, an intensive retreat, like we are sitting, and it was a, a, a three-month practice period, and, and I was about two months into my three-month practice period. And during this practice period, I was sitting in my room, pretty much sitting and walking in my room the whole time, Occasionally, I would slip out the, the back door and do some walking practice on, on what used to be the little swimming pool there that was converted into a uh, converted into a little concrete walking area with gardens all around. And so I would do a little walking and go back into my room. And after two months of pretty much spending most of the time in my room, you get very, very quiet. The world as we know it ordinarily begins to uh, deconstruct a little bit. Uh, what starts out as a very gross perception of our reality, of, of our physical reality, our mental reality, starts uh, unraveling so that we actually begin to see that the world is made up of these, uh, these the constant flow and movement of, of changing conditions, uh, just fleeting so fast. And with really not much, all happening all by itself, selflessly. And, and that's, a, that's an amazing thing to bear witness to. And that it is in some ways the direction of our practice to see more deeply into the nature of reality. Not just 
are the deeper into our psychological issues or our, uh, our historical um, predicament and our situations of our life, but to see directly, not just to know about ourselves, but to know ourselves directly, uh, just as we are, moment by moment, which is in some way what we experience moment to moment, not as easily defined by memory or, or hope. It's just very simple in a way. But this all begins to deconstruct. At the same time, however, over a long practice period, there is also a parallel process of what I'd call psychological regression. (laughs) Where the longer I was there, the younger I became. And because just as you are on this retreat, as your heart tenderizes, as your eyes clear, you begin to see with the eyes of a child, very open, very completely uh, in some ways in awe of the, of the display of your, of, your, of your own heart and mind. And people have, in the groups today, where many people were marveling at what they were seeing, the f- different phenomena, the different experiences that w- uh, were dawning in their consciousness. The, the, the Tibetans have this word called emaho, which means how amazing. And the more you practice, the more there's this quality of emaho. But with the psychological regression and becoming more childlike, also the childlike vulnerability begins to arise. And in my case, and I didn't intend to make the story this long, but in my case, as my vulnerability increased, as I turned into what felt like to me like I was a one-year-old, everything I looked at at a certain point, two months into the retreat, all by myself in the room, everything I looked at, everything I heard, being so sensitive, everything I felt, everything I thought about was painful, was scary. And I felt as though every sense, every door of perception, my ears, my eyes, my, everything was fe- being felt impinged upon like I, was, like I had no protection. Ever feel like that, you, like you have no skin? This is actually insight into what the Buddha called Sankara Dukkha, the, the, the pain of just dealing with, both very intimately with the conditions that keep relentlessly presenting themselves moment to moment. In the more general sense of our lives, it's Sankara Dukkha is the, is the pain of having to get up in the Groundhog Day experience, of getting up and doing it again every day. Just, you just can't stop the, the flow, and it's, and it's not easy. We, it's not easy from a general perspective and it's not easy when we sense it in that more intimate way. And it, it reminded me that without building a whole monument to that experience of vulnerability, it reminds me that life is not, it's not as pretty and pleasant as we somehow think it should be. You know, the biggest problem we have is that we don't think we should have problems. And this was clearly, you know, a kind of feeling that I carried around. So anyway, I'm regressed in this room and I'm, everything's painful. And a little side story, but it's really the central part of the story is in my room, which was about seven or eight feet wide by 12 feet long, where all of this was taking place, I had, I had no closet and I had a clothes rack hanging on one side of the room. And 
it was very clear to me that I had way too many clothes with me. And then I brought all kinds of other accoutrements. I realized I had way too much stuff. And up to this point, I would look over at my stuff. And when I was having a hard time, I would fantasize buying more or having it in different colors. And that's what my mind would do. Your mind will come up with anything to entertain yourself. But in other moments, I would look over and I would get kind of irritated with, with the fact that I had so much stuff that I didn't really need. And, you know, this path is, it's all about renunciation and simplicity and contentment. And here I was in this room with what I thought was too much stuff. But as I was feeling really tender, I realized in that vulnerability that I needed in the worst way to be held. I needed a good squeeze. And there was no one there to squeeze me. No one there to squeeze me. I was on my own. And so what did I do? I rolled off my cushion and I was sitting on a foam pad, which was doubled as my, my zabutan, doubled as my bed. And I took the extra pillows that I had with me and I wrapped myself up in these pillows and I just, and I held myself. And at that very moment, I just started to, as any baby would that needs to be held, I just started to wail. And I wailed and I wailed and I wailed. And I looked up in the room. And in a flash of insight, I looked up at that clothes rack and all the extra stuff that I had. And, I, and a thought came to my mind. This is how I've been trying to hold myself. This has been how I've been trying to soothe myself. And something cracked in my heart and this wave of self-compassion came, this wave of, of mercy came. And literally from that day forward, when I feel vulnerable, when I feel tender, when I see the habits that, uh, as Hafez says, can ruin my life, uh, my default reaction is to... Uh, is to come to my rescue, is to be kind, not to judge myself. And it reminds me of a, a passage from a, a teacher named Nisargadatu who said, your flight from pain and your search for pleasure is a sign of love you bear for yourself. He says, all I plead with you is this, make love of yourself perfect. Give yourself infinity and realize that, that you're beyond. So don't, don't settle for for your normal flights of trying to get this and trying to get that. Um, but it, the part of the poem that says your flight from pain and your search for pleasure is a sign of love you bear for yourself, it's um, even those things that you feel, and I'm thinking about this now because those things that you feel as though you need forgiveness for, those flights from pain and search for pleasure, even the things that, ways that we act, think, speak and act in ways that have caused harm to ourselves or others, if we were to look deeply into that, the hidden aim was to find relief. The hidden aim was to be happy. Even if it, we were defending ourselves, even if we were attacking, blaming, whatever, neglecting. Uh, so this, is, this practice is, uh, even though 
as the Buddha said, and James reminded us the first night, whatever one frequently dwells upon becomes the inclination of the mind. Most of what we dwell, have dwelled upon, what, most of what we have given our attention to, are those things that we thought were going to bring us relief, bring us peace. So that was just a story that came through my mind during the sitting. And I was thinking tonight in terms of the joy of awakening that the Buddha was, was trying to find relief just like all of us. He's no different human being, um, relatively privileged. You know, this is a privilege to be able to be in this kind of company, to to have time, to have resources, to have good enough health, to have consciousness that's clear enough. And uh, he, w- he had very beautiful conditions in his life relative to how, many, how so many people would not even feel safe to be safe or be interested, be healthy enough, be conscious enough to, uh, to look deeply into their own nature. So he was... Uh, trying everything, just like we've tried everything. And he tried, uh, he tried the perfect sensual day, as we often joke here about the perfect California or the perfect Marin County or the perfect wherever you live day, where if you link enough pleasurable moments together, you wake up, you look into the eyes of your beloved, you make mad, passionate love, and you roll out of bed into your... Uh, hot shower or your hot tub or and you look into the eyes of your beloved again then you have your special organic breakfast and then you (laughs) and your smoothie with your whatever and then you you have your round of tennis or or whatever it is that you do your aikido or your yoga class or your um what your Pilates, <laughs> and then you have another uh, California cuisine lunch, or <laughs> made with your with the farmers market veg. It's really a a caricature of and something that we joke about here. But every place has their version, and each of us has our own version of what we think uh, will make us happy. The idea being, if you link enough pleasurable moments together, you can call yourself happy. Same t- same thing at the time of the Buddha, yet. What he realized as he, his, in his flight for pain and search for pleasure, even though all coming out of love for himself, is he became, as most of us do, progressively uh, dissatisfied. So I like to look at how what the Buddha dwelled upon that became the inclination of his mind, how that changed with the uh, awakening of his consciousness with, and the joy that came as his, uh, that which he put his attention on, to get back to uh, Deborah's talk last night, as she talked about putting your attention on the state of love, as his attention be, uh, was put on uh, different aspects of experience, his joy increased. Now, what was that? 
what was that, that he did? The first thing was his attention in his search. He tried everything, felt dissatisfied, told his dad, if I have to, if I have to be the Lord of the lands, go into your business, it would be for me like a bed of coals because there's no, there's no um, a peace in my heart. There's no relief in this. It's unsatisfactory. It's, this, is, this is dukkha in its definition of unreliability. It's just not reliable as a refuge for, my, for a refuge of peace. I can't find relief this way. And seeing that, seeing that clearly, turned, began to turn his mind away from the things that in this world that can give us tremendous pleasure. That perfect day gives us a lot of pleasure, but not a lot of happiness. But what really turned his, um, his dwelling place in a different direction was seeing the realities that we've talked about that, that uh, are part of the very definition of our birth, the definition of our birth. It's the leading cause of sickness. It's the leading cause of, of aging. And it's the leading cause of dying. That's what, that's what comes with being born. <laughs> As one teacher put it, from the moment we're born, we're sinking ships. And that may be rationally obvious to all of us. But there is something in our consciousness that doesn't want to see that. In fact, many of the old teachings from the Hindu tradition, the Bhagavad Gita, there's this question, what's the most wondrous thing in this world? And the answer given, the most wondrous thing in this world is that billions are dying around us every day, but somehow we don't think it'll happen to us. It's just, we know it's going to happen to us, but somehow that we're built in to have a, a, some measure of self-deception about that. But at this point, there was so much dissatisfaction in the heart and the mind of the Buddha genuine existential angst, queasiness, uncomfortableness, that he was struck by this uh, reality of, he was kind of opened, he was vulnerable, he was regressed in a way. (laughs) And he saw, this is how it is. And this was actually his, one of his first hits of the, of what he later described in his turning of the wheel of the teachings as the first noble truth. And it's hard to believe that this was the the springboard to nirvana, the springboard to the joy of awakening. But later on he described that there's a prescription for dealing with this that gives us a reminder of what of what will actually turn this very experience into the path, turn it into happiness. And as James spoke about the other night, uh, he gave the recipe. And the recipe with this fact of sickness, old age, and death, the fact of the unsatisfactoriness of life, the unreliability of all the changing conditions, uh, the recipe for dealing with it is open to it. Come into harmony with this. Don't run from it. Don't hide from it. Just open to it. It's not your fault. 
It's not just you, it's everything and everyone. That's the nature of things. It's not weird. It's not pessimistic. It's realistic. It's how it is. And there's some, I don't know about you, but for me, the first time I heard somebody talk about this, called the Four Noble Truths, I wept. I, it was, and it was the, it was the, the uh, cry of joy. Somebody was finally saying it. Because what is, what, is our, um, what is our advertising telling us? That something that you buy, some place in your life, some person that you meet, some situation that you have, will give you somehow, the implicit view is it'll give you lasting happiness. This is what, uh, if I can find it here. This is what Sogil Rinpoche shares in a, a hard-hitting piece about the, the confusion in our minds about and how our culture reinforces our uh, not turning toward truth but turning away from it. He says, Sometimes I think that the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara. That samsara means endless wandering, endless searching for future that never arrives, this kind of cycle of continually looking for love in all the wrong places. This, its brilliant selling of samsara and its barren distractions. Modern society seems to me to be a celebration of all the things that lead away from the truth, make truth hard to live for, and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life, but actually starves it of any real meaning, that endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and depression that it fosters and trains us all in, and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, and sophisticated. Salts us from every angle with its propaganda and creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction around us. The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into the traps it is so ingenious at setting for us. Obsessed then with false hopes, dreams, and ambitions, which promise happiness but lead only to misery, we're like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst. And all that samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water designed to make us thirstier. Here's what the Dalai Lama said. When asked what surprised him most about humanity, he answered, man. (laughs) Because he sacrifices his health in order to make money. Then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health. And then he's so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present. The result being he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he's never going to die and then dies having never really lived. Just to add a light-hearted touch to the... In in all seriousness, I'd like to add a a light touch. Someone passed on a little little story. The past and the present 
and the future walked into a bar. It was tense. <laughs> it is tense when we are, when we are bound up in, in the samsaric loop because our whole orientation, and this is the, what the Buddha discovered as he turned toward the way things are, the way we are wired, the way that we organize ourselves, he saw that our whole orientation is, to, is about a happiness that depends on satisfying some kind of hunger, otherwise known as conditional happiness. You're happy when you have it, you're unhappy when you don't. He called this lokiya sukha, worldly happiness. And of course, worldly happiness includes all the many, many, many extraordinary joys that we can have as a, as a person. But if we spend our time, make our devotion only the different forms of worldly happiness, then we fall into what he called a state of misplaced faith. We put our faith in experiences that are very delicious, very uplifting, but in fact leave in their wake a feeling of loss because they're temporary. And each experience and each loss leaves in its wake a seed planted that conditions our mind to, to seek the next one. And pretty soon we are pretty much in a perpetual state of what I call a state of suspended happiness. In some way, waiting to be happy, waiting to be well, waiting for love. As Hafez says in one of his poems, I don't, oh yeah, I do have it with me. He says, Every, everyone you see, you say to them, love me, love me. Of course, you don't say this out loud, otherwise someone would call the cops. Still though, think about this, this great pull in us to connect. Why not become the one who lives with the full moon in each eye? That's always saying with that sweet moon language what every other eye is in this world is dying to hear. So he's saying in this poem, this this loop of being in a state of suspended happiness is obscuring, is, is um, you're looking exactly away from the very source of your, uh, of your happiness. It could be called the natural happiness of being conscious. That all search for happiness elsewhere is a kind of misery, and it leads to more misery. And the only happiness worth that name is the happiness of being conscious, being awake. Just notice for a moment right now, after your last desire has passed and before the next one comes, just notice the state of your heart and mind as you sit here halfway right in the middle between your last thought and desire and before your next one. Notice what you experience when you just, in some ways, let yourself be. Anybody willing to say what what happens 
after your last thought's gone, before the next one comes? What's present? Deep breath and relief. Anything else? Sense of ease. What else? Panic. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you want to You want another one real fast. Usually if we're if we're honest there is a moment. There's a moment of of relief, of ease. Sometimes panic because we're not used to it maybe. Or sometimes we want the next we want to get on to the next one. But this 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 sense of ease, this sense of Peace, the end of the rainbow. Isn't that the hidden name in everything? If I get what I want, isn't it that, that being able to have that feeling? Ah. Done, I got what I wanted. We think we have to wait for it. Think we, that it, it takes time. But in fact, it's our, it, is our, it, it is always already our natural state. So our path is not to get there. Our path is just to, as we've been saying in various ways, is to clear, is to clear the path so that, the, so that what dawns, what becomes really clear is that we, one way of talking about it is that we are already immersed in the very thing that we're searching for. This is what happened to the Buddha under the Bodhi tree. But this means when we talk about clearing, it's clearing the tendency of mind to, um, to want to get somewhere. One of the cultural habits is trying to keep up with the Joneses, you know, comp- trying to keep up with what other people have. As a wonderful teacher named Bo Lozoff says, you know, it's time that we see that the, that the uh, Joneses are not happy. Rilke says, we are the driving ones. Ah, but the step of time. Think of it as a dream in, for, in what forever remains. All this hurrying soon will be over with. Only what lasts can bring us to the truth. So don't put your trust in the trials of flight, into the hot and the quick. All things already rest. Darkness, morning light, flower and book. As long as we, according to, again, this Nisargadatta, as long as we believe that we need things to make us happy, we shall also believe that in their absence we must be miserable. Mind shapes itself according to its belief. Pleasure, in this way, is a distraction, for it merely increases the false conviction that one needs to have and do things to be happy, when in reality it's just the opposite. Real happiness is best expressed negatively as, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm curious, after the last thought and before the next one, you know, when we're just being awake and present, is there anything wrong with you? 
if you don't consult your memory. Easily overlooked the natural happiness of of being conscious. Real happiness is best expressed negatively. There's nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to worry about. After all, the purpose of practice is to reach a point where this conviction, instead of being only verbal, is based on actual ever-present experience. What experience? The experience of being open, empty, uncluttered momentarily by memories, expectations. It's like the happiness of open spaces, of being young, of having all the time and energy for doing things, for discovery, for adventure. Your true home is in this openness. True happiness has no cause. And what has no cause is immovable. Easily overlooked, even though it's right here. So I jumped the gun a little bit about how the Buddha began to dwell on other matters. First, he was so... Um, moved by the the reality of sickness, old age, and death and the fact of impermanence that, his, that really shook him up because he said, well, everything I've been, I've been trying to experience in my life is also, everything I've been using to make me happy is also going to change and unreliable. And it just makes me want more and it's, uh, and I, and it's not making me any happier. But then he he saw what's called the fourth heavenly messenger. He saw an example of someone who was living a little bit differently, who was living very simply, very wakefully, had a kind of peaceful countenance, a mendicant, a monk. And he, he saw maybe it's possible to, to find that reliable peace, a reliable happiness, true happiness uh, internally. And so he started doing practice like we are doing here. And so even though he had tremendous appreciation for the joys of the world, how much pleasure there is, and how much that pleasure in some ways in the capacity to enjoy the pleasures of the world depends on, on, your, um, on our actions, on whether we are non-harming in our life. If we practice to the degree that we can knowing everyone uh, causes ourselves or, or others harm from time to time. But for the most part, if we, if we incline our lives and our mind, as James has been speaking of, toward the wholesome and we live what he called a, um, a life of blamelessness, then it's possible to both experience the bliss that comes from non-harming, from blamelessness, but also it makes possible the true enjoyment of the world of the senses, of being able to just enjoy everything, just enjoy being here on retreat, where your mind is not inundated with the effects of your past actions. So purity of action is a, is a deep cause of the joy of, of blamelessness, a deep cause of being able to enjoy the world of the senses. So not to knock the world of the senses. As Suzuki Roshi, a, uh, a Zen teacher, put it, 
Renunciation is not giving up the things of this world, but in understanding that they go away. So it's not about giving things up and not about uh, having a negative view about the world of sense pleasures. Even though that worldly happiness, the Buddha, uh, that he called uh, Lokiya Sukha, he also called it the happiness of slavery, the happiness of bondage, because we tend to get stuck in it. So at this point, he gently relinquished his dependency on sense pleasures. And later on in his practice, he came back to realizing that you need some pleasure of the senses. You need to be well-fed. You need to be comfortable to the extent that you can be. You need to, you need to, be, you need to have uh, some, some um, capacity to take in the beauty. We wouldn't be given these these amazing senses, if, if, they weren't, if things were not meant to be enjoyed to some degree. It brings gladness to the heart, as we talk about. But he, he let it go as, a, as a, his main devotion, the perfect day. He gave that up. And instead, he started to practice. And in his practice, he brought his attention into the same location in his body, very much the same qualities of mind that you've been bringing to everything that you've been doing here, even your writing, even your reflecting during the afternoon periods, the walking, the eating, what you've been doing, you've been employing a part of our mind that brings joy. It's two little things that our mind does beautifully that is part of our nature that makes us happy when you do it over and over again. And those two things are, the, I'll give you the Pali words from the, traditional, from, the, from the traditional language. It's two things. One's called vitaka, one's called vichara. Vitaka is the gathering of your attention to, to something, bringing your attention. So when I bring my attention to you right now, forgot your first name? Morgan. I bring my attention to Morgan. And it... That's vitaka. And vichara is I sustain that attention and I let, it, I let myself stay there. If I gather my attention to Morgan and I stay there for a while, and you probably experienced this in some of the exercises, if you gather your attention and you stay there, there are three qualities that come with that. There's a quality of, what grows is a quality of affection, of a, a kind of comfort, a kind of interest, a rapture, and a feeling, you know, after a while, if we stayed like this, we, we would enter a, a kind of little cosmic bubble. We would come to an experience of what we call one-pointedness, called ekagata. And when you come to that point of one-pointedness, you start to feel connected to everything around you. And it all starts with just gathering and sustaining. And this is what the Buddha did. Given meditation instructions, he just gathered his attention to whatever the object of meditation was. And very quickly, these other qualities started to grow in his heart. And many people have described the fruits of this connecting and sustaining. Over the course of the retreat, people are starting to have these little experiences, sometimes unpleasant, sometimes pleasant, but they are all the fruits of a mind that is beginning to experience Um, some measure of concentration. And again, concentration is something that happens in our practice. It's not something we do. What we do is we simply connect and we sustain. 
And then concentration comes sometimes and sometimes it doesn't. But when it comes, as it did for the Buddha, we experience a feeling, a a great sense of well-being. We experience a joy, a joy of having our mind and body come together in harmony, a joy of concentration. And the Buddha had this big time because he was so sincere about his practice. He wasn't interested in anything else at this point because he was on such, uh, such an intense, holy desire, holy longing that he just was on his practice. And he, he entered into um, very profound states of concentration. We all get little pieces of them and sometimes they're stronger than others, completely unpredictable. We don't know when it's going to come and yet they, they come and it's inevitable that we feel some sense of relief in moments, some sense of harmony. And in those moments that are sometimes called unmixed happiness, there's no, for those moments, there's no desire to be anywhere else. And that's a novelty in, in this life. Most of the time we're obsessed by what's next. We're, mo- we're usually in our minds caught in having in our thoughts, having come from the past, moving through the present, on our way to the future. Even though we never leave the present, we're always here. That's all just our imagination. But our imagination runs so much that, we, that, we, um, that we, our bodies are affected by that and we feel very unsteady, very scattered, and, and very dissatisfied. So in these moments when it all comes together, we're just here and we practice that, there's this feeling of, of no hindrances. I, I don't want what I don't have. I don't want to get rid of what I do have. I'm not restless. I'm not exhausted. I'm, starting, I'm plugged into a kind of an inexhaustible sense of aliveness that gets stronger. And my doubts begin to f- vanish. I start to feel confident. And this, uh, the Buddha started to experience, he called it the joy of concentration also known as purity of mind, when the mind is just not, not all confused for a while, not so busy. It happens. But as, uh, as is true with you, it was also true with the Buddha. He realized that um, this is a springboard. He called it the springboard to nirvana. This gets, you, this gets you very inspired when you have a moment like that. But he said, he realized this is a trick. This is, uh, this is not only it's a springboard that it, because it inspires you, but it's also uh, can easily corrupt your practice, hurt your practice, because you end up having a little experience like this and you end up spending the, the next hours, the next days looking for it, trying to replicate it. Any of you try to replicate any pleasant experiences? We call it carrying the corpses of previous experiences. It creates a burden. And then our practice is like practicing with this state of greed in our mind, craving, waiting, hoping, expecting, and it's like trying to practice with the brakes on. And we, and we can't understand why we're getting more and more tense. So he realized that even the happiness and joy that comes with a concentrated heart and mind uh, is temporary. Even though it lasts a lot longer, 
much more joyful than or ordinary sense pleasures. So many benefits, inspiring, healing to the body, deconditions your habits of needing to be excessively, have excessive stimulation all the time, makes you love peace. Even though it has all these benefits, it's temporary. And so he realized that that was not, that was not the end of the, of the awakening of joy. Not the end of, uh, that was not the true joy of awakening. And so at that point, there was nobody to teach him anything else. So that's when he went out on his own and started dwelling. Remember, whatever one frequently dwells upon becomes the inclination of the mind. He dwelt, he dwelled on self-denial. He started by dwelling on on self-mortification practices and, and and just trying to deny himself food and any comfort. And so he learned through dwelling on that, that what is the fruit of dwelling in that? Is you get sick and tired and unable to meditate. <laughs> and then he remembered that when he, as a young boy, as he dwelled comfortably under a cherry apple tree and he was well fed, his mind was very serene. So he realized that some measure of comfort's a good thing. So it's not about denying yourself comfort, but expanding beyond the extremes of denial or indulgence. And somewhere, that's where he found the middle way. But there was nobody to teach him how to meditate anymore at that point. So that's when he sat down under the Bodhi tree. You probably all know this story as well as I do. And what he began to dwell upon temporarily was the same practice the practices that he had called upon that produced this great joy of concentration the very elements of what we're doing here bringing our attention to the the reality of the present moment it doesn't even matter what the object is whatever's arising at any of the doors of perception he started noticing and very quickly his mind entered once again into the joy of concentration but it's said that in the in the Um, teachings, he did not let the joy take over. He didn't let himself be seduced by it. Instead, he applied the strength of heart and mind, the strength, the, the, the mental, the observing power that grows in our practice. You know, our, our lights get really brighter and our mind gets very strong. We get, have this much greater capacity to notice things and to stay with them and to And of course it ebbs and flows during the day. Sometimes we we can't sit with things at all because we're tired or we're hungry. But at those times when when you have mental strength, you can learn so much from just connecting with things and staying with things. And that's what we're doing here. We're connecting and we're sustaining. And he started to do that. Not letting the joy of his concentration take over. He just started to pay attention in a very careful way. And he, many things happened in that time. He, he started to move beyond the joy of concentration. And he started to begin to taste the joy of insight. Sometimes called purity or purification of view. 
he started to see, because his mind was getting brighter and brighter, he began to see more clearly what was going on. And as we have alluded to in many of the different talks, he began to see not just the, the sensations that were coming, not just the moods that were coming and going, not, with, not just the stories that were playing in his mind, although it became quite clear, and maybe it has to you already, that the story that plays through your mind describes, describes someone who does not exist. It describes a virtual you. The story that plays through your mind cannot capture your immediate and direct experience, which is so much more grand, so much more whole and enough and full. And so he began to see all these thoughts and he started to have insight. And he said, as one, one of our teachers, Manindraji, used to say, this is a one way of thinking about it. He says, a thought of your mother is not your mother. But he started to see that a thought of himself was not himself. A thought is just a bubble, a phantom, a dream, a footprint, like a footprint. It's like a, one of the phrases that's used, like a footprint of a bird in emptiness. Insubstantial, nothing. Only an approximation of, of you, a description of your situation, of your history, which is beautiful and unique. And even your stories are unique. And they're one of the ways, and sharing them is one of the ways that we connect with one another. But they cannot capture the depth of who you are, the true, your true, your, your deepest nature. And so, again, I asked you, who are you? What is your experience after your last story has ceased and before the next one comes? What, do you, what dawns in that moment when you're not defined by your story or your memories? Just sense what that is. And this is, some would say, all we can really say at this moment is, I'm aware or my mind is filled with whatever's happening in this room. Or I feel this, or I feel that. But usually when we have touched that level of immediacy, our suffering, at least for that moment, has ceased. We have to consult our memory. As one of my teachers, Punjaji, used to say, you need thoughts and the past to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. And Hafez says, What do people who are sad have in common? They've all built a shrine to the past and often go there to do a strange wail and worship. What's the beginning of happiness? It's to stop being so religious like that. (laughs) And I created my own second verse. What do people who are anxious and worried have in common? They've all built a shrine to the future and often go there to do a strange wail and worry. What's the beginning of happiness? Is to stop being so religious like that. So that freedom from that is simply as a split second, a half breath away. It's the shift from being just carried along by those virtual versions of ourselves, the shift from being caught in that to noticing it as we've been describing. It's more profound a, a kind of liberation than you know, to be able to notice what you're thinking and not be defined by it. Because 
if you feel your experience moment by moment here, how hard it is to put in words. Almost anything you say about it is insulting. It's not, it doesn't really capture it. We are so beautiful, so enough in our, in our unique expression of life that's sitting here, so different from that version of ourselves that plays in our mind. It's based on our history or our story or our traumas or our, wor- our plans. As beautiful and as rich as all of our stories make us, they cannot capture our, that inner depth that all of us have been pointing to, which is the one who's sitting here right now, as you are. It was a passage in that book, Eat, Pray, Love, The Divine is in Me as Me. So not only did the Buddha start to see the difference between the thoughts of himself, just the, the thoughts, he started to see what was common to all of them. And the same with the feelings, and same with the sensations. What was common is that they were just coming and going, coming and going, coming and going, coming and going. And so they were, they, they, couldn't, uh, they couldn't be me. If they, where are they now? That thought can't be me. It's not here now. So he saw the selflessness of the thoughts. He saw that if, as we've been saying, if you try to hold on to those, there's, there's suffering in that. You get identified with those, you suffer. And he's, it was so clear, like the line from James J. Audubon who says, if there's a difference between the bird, you, and what the field guide book says, Believe the bird. (laughs) So easy to fall into a case of mistaken identity. But the more he saw that everything was coming and going, all these stories, all these sensations, everything about what he would usually define himself as, so the body was changing, not solid, not me, not mine, the moods coming and going all by themselves, thoughts, just like with the world of, of pleasures and, and everything else that he had grasped onto, he began to just gently let go. Just fall back into seeing the arising and vanishing of things. Just as you have at times, many people said they just kind of fell into a state where everything was just coming and going. It wasn't bothering them at all and and he fell into a state, a, a very joyful state, sometimes called the joy of equanimity. The joy of seeing the arising and passing of things. Joys, sorrows, but the mind not moving toward or away from, not rejecting, not grasping. And there's was, there was such delight, and it was also the first taste, the first understanding that he had that there's another kind of happiness, a happiness that doesn't depend on what's going on, doesn't depend on being happy as a good mood, doesn't depend on whether I'm sad or suffering, or it's, it, depend, it doesn't depend on anything. That it, it is prior to, it, it, it pervades even the difficulties. 
this well-being he called lokutra sukha, unstuck from the from the world, beyond the power of to be thrown off. So able to meet the joys and the sorrows, praise and blame, gain and loss, and remain uh, at peace, balanced, open. And as he rested in this quality of, of equanimity, this joy of equanimity, purity, purity of view, seeing things as they are, seeing that really all that's ever happening, we've spoken of this already, all that's ever happening in its pristine truth is there's sights and knowing of them, sounds and the knowing of them, smells and the knowing of them, tastes and the knowing of them, feelings in the body and the knowing of them, thoughts and the knowing of them, feelings, that that's all. No me, no you, no self at all. And the more he saw things just as they are in that simplicity, this great joy of seeing the truth. Things are much more simple. Our mind complicates, elaborates, proliferates. But reality in its simplicity is very, is very um, manageable. If we actually experience the truth of the present moment. And the good news is, it's the only moment we have. The last one's gone, next one hasn't happened. And so the only place that we can uh, really experience reality is in the present, and the present only has these six experiences. The way we usually complicate it is just a story. So the more he rested in this joy of, of simplicity, of seeing things as they are, seeing the arising and passing of things without reacting, it seemed as though everything he paid attention to made his mind get brighter and brighter and brighter. That's also our mind gets brighter the more you see. That's why your senses, even after a few days here, they get so clear. Sounds are more vivid. The tastes are more alive. Feelings, and it's all just because we've been brushing the dust of memory by being mindful. And his mind was just shining in its clarity. And he, he said, and he uttered this thing, luminous is my mind, brightly shining. And, you know, most people don't see this. And they, because they're visited by all the stuff in our thoughts and our feelings, and they, they think, this is me, this is mine. And they get, we get lost in it. But he said, luminous is my mind, brightly shining, and it's untouched by all the things that come and go. The very mind through which I'm perceiving is untouched. So even when I'm sad, awareness is not sad. When there's a fire, awareness is not hot. Untouched by whatever visits. And as he rested in this kind of luminous openness, feeling the joy of equanimity. In a flash of insight, as his mind withdrew from its normal preoccupations, it, his, his heart opened, just, just unfurled. And in a flash of insight, he realized that uh, he realized the, that his own mind was, was unconditioned, was deathless, was free, unborn, he discovered nirvana as the very nature of his own heart. Not to be found anywhere 
except in the here and now. And why not this here and now? Why not now? What are we waiting for? But he didn't think anybody could get it. And uh, (laughs) because it was so close, it was so wonderful, so vast, and in some ways, kind of easy. (laughs) Don't have to go anywhere. But he saw that there were those with just a little bit of dust on their eyes. I include all of us. Uh, those who, if they, were, if they came back to themselves, and connected and sustained moment by moment. Just let the, the awareness grow and grow that you would come to see that the happiness, the deepest happiness that you've been looking for, uh, the, the joy of awakening is the dawning of of, and the awakening of your own heart. Not just for historical Buddhas, but you are the Buddha. Why don't we see this? Because we think we're not. But if you've tasted just a little bit of taste of your mind not clinging, not pushing away, not making up a story about yourself, then you can, and you've tasted a little bit, you're your own mind undefined by memory and plans, that you can refer to that again and again. So may you all know the highest happiness. The whole point of seeing through this illusion of separateness is to see through the illusion of other, to awaken to love, the face of this openness, this undefined mind is, is love. I thought I would end tonight with a, a chant that, that, are, that are the words of the, the chant of the words of, of Ram Dass's teacher, since we were on the Ram Dass theme last night. I want to end with the words of Neem Karoli Baba, Maharaji, Ram Dass's teacher, that um, in some ways describes our own awakening. It goes like this. I am like the wind. No one can hold me. I belong to everyone. No one can own me. The whole world is my home. All are my family. I live in every heart. I will never leave thee. Oh, crystal tears. Oh, taking away my fears. So without a view of yourself, a view of yourself, without a self-view, you may begin to sense that your nature is like the wind. No one can hold you. You belong to everyone. No one can own you. The whole world is your home. All are your family. You live in every heart. Let's just be quiet for a moment. Don't need to change your position.
Then may all beings know the joy of awakening. Thank you for your long, enduring attention. Sometimes the third night, we're a little tired. Thanks for staying with it. And we now have about 15 minutes for walking practice, enjoying the reality of the present moment, and then we'll sit again uh, at nine. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.